you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now on Fast, new fears that a COVID surge in China will lead to a flood of variants spreading beyond Beijing's borders. The global impact of a winter wave with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Plus a shocking decision by the Bank of Japan, the BOJ shifting their target range for bonds. Wonky headline for sure, but a move sending massive ripples through the currency and rates markets. A little yen 101 coming up. And later, Tesla's high-speed crash, the stock tumbling yet again, now down over 14% in just a week, close to 30% this month and over 60% this year. Is this a Musk management problem or a fundamental flaw? I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Stocks breaking a four-day losing streak today. The major averages finishing modestly higher with nine of 11 sectors in the green. Energy, the big winner. We'll dive deeper into the market action and that shocking move by the Bank of Japan coming up. But we begin with a new COVID fear on the radar of the U.S. State Department, a growing wave of cases in China as the country struggles to deal with an overwhelmed hospital system and a large undervaccinated population. This, as the U.S., comes into the holiday season. Travel, of course, soaring around the globe and in and out of China. Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb warning this could be a long winter for China and an even worse spring here in the United States. Let's bring in Dr. Gottlieb now. He's a CNBC contributor and a partner at New Enterprise Associates. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, great to have you with us. Um, how bad will it be in China? Can China do anything right now to, to help the situation it has on hand? Well, look, I think the infection is out of control right now in China. They are doing things. They are implementing some mitigation. So, for example, Shanghai closed schools this week. You're seeing businesses start to close. People are obviously wearing masks and pulling back. I think that's going to prolong the pain for China. This could be a very long endeavor, not the Omicron wave that we had last winter, where it lasted about two months from peak to trough to, to finish but uh, a, a wave of infection that could last four to six months because they are taking some mitigation. So they're going to slow the spread of the infection, but they're not going to snuff it out. And the other challenge that China faces is that they have different variants circulating in different parts of the country. So in Beijing, they have BF7, which is a highly contagious variant, probably more contagious than measles. In other parts of the country, they have BQ1.1, which is what's spreading here, and BA5. They also have XBB, another variant that has immune escape features. And so they could have a situation where they, they resolve the infection in one part of the country, and then that part of the country gets reinfected with another variant that might have been spreading in another region. Right. They've also got a large elderly population, which is largely unvaccinated. Uh, they've got uh, a big population of, of people with diabetes as well, so an underlying condition. And then on top of all of this, there's vaccine nationalism, um, Dr. Gottlieb. And, and we heard from our CEO of Moderna, Steve uh, Stefan Bonsell, who said that he had been uh, in talks with Beijing about possibly delivering his mRNA vaccine there. Um, but at this point, can, could that help if, if Xi Jinping suddenly said, you know what, Let's embrace the Western vaccine. Will that ameliorate the situation? Look, I think it's probably too late because they would need to deploy at least one, probably multiple doses. I'm on the board of Pfizer. There had been discussions early on about licensing the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine through a subsidiary in China, and a deal was cut to do that, and China ultimately pulled back from 
that. I think it's a little bit difficult right now and late to get a Western vaccine into that market. They are developing their own mRNA vaccines, but again, they're not close to market. The one thing they are doing is trying to bring the antiviral drugs into, into China right now. But as you said, the elderly population is under-vaccinated. Only about 69% of those over the age of 65 have had a booster. Only about 40% of those over the age of 80. So the most, the most vulnerable people in the population are under-vaccinated, similar to Hong Kong. And if you remember, Hong Kong had that devastating wave of Omicron last March, where at the peak of the wave, one in 20 people were dying of the infection, largely because the people who were most vulnerable, the elderly population in Hong Kong, were the ones who were least likely to be vaccinated and boosted. It's very similar in China. There are cultural reasons why the older population has not gone out and gotten vaccinated at the same rate that the younger population has. Walk us through how, why you think it's going to be a terrible spring for the United States because of the spread in China. Is it because there are going to be new variants for which we are not vaccinated against here? I mean, is the spread of, of COVID there amongst an unvaccinated population, does that yield variants that are more virulent? Yeah, well, I don't necessarily think we're going to have a difficult spring. I think it remains to be seen as too early to determine. Um, the reality is that there are other variants circulating here. Uh, BF7, as I mentioned, XBB, two variants that probably are going to escape the existing vaccines and escape the immunity that people are acquiring as they get infected with BA5 and BQ1.1 and BQ1, the two variants of BA5. So we're going to be vulnerable to those two variants. Now, they're already circulating here, but they're circulating in a higher proportion in China. So China does become a global repository for variants that are worrisome. We don't have vaccines that are probably going to be highly protective against those new variants, the XBB and the BF7. Right now, XBB is about 5% of infections here in the U.S. It's been pretty level for the last four weeks. But that's the one that we're worried about for this spring, that and BF7. There'll be a meeting of FDA after the new year where they're going to discuss whether or not they try to prep a vaccine booster based on those new variants to have in our back pocket, at least for the elderly population and those who are immunocompromised to protect them in the event that those two new variants do start to spread in the spring. I think it's a little early to say that that's going to happen, but it's certainly a risk for the future. Dr. Gottlieb, it's Karen Feinerman. Thanks for being on. How do you think we're going to look at COVID two or three years from now? Is this going to be something that just like the flu you get vaccinated for, a lot of people get it, or how do you think it will evolve? Yeah, I think we're seeing it already evolve. Right now, there are 30,000 hospitalizations from COVID. This time last year, there were 60,000 hospitalizations. This time two years ago, there were 100,000 hospitalizations. Remember, that was over a period of time when we were taking a lot of personal precautions to prevent ourselves from getting infected. So I think you're starting to see COVID become like the other circulating respiratory pathogens in the wintertime. And right now, flu is comprising a higher proportion of the people who are being hospitalized than COVID. That said, there are people who are going to be excessively vulnerable to COVID, and they'll probably remain excessively vulnerable. We know that COVID is particularly dangerous in the elderly, and it's particularly dangerous in those who are immunocompromised. So for those individuals, we're going to have to continue to make sure that we have up-to-date vaccines. We have therapeutics available. I think everyone should be getting vaccinated, but particularly for the vulnerable population, they're going to have to take more steps to protect themselves, like they do with flu. But for certain populations, particularly the elderly population, COVID does appear to be more dangerous right now than the flu. Dr. Gottlieb, thanks so much for joining us. Always great to have you on. Thanks Dr. a lot. Dr. Scott Gottlieb. And of course, we're talking about this because obviously there, there are clear ramifications when it comes to the impact on global GDP, when it comes to the impact on supply chains. We, we thought we were through the worst, the supply chain issues, and here we are again. We might be yet another lockdown or shutdown away from another snarl here, Tim.
think about China's role in the in volatility in China, you know, econ and what it's meant for global inflation, what it's meant for, you know, reflation. First of all, China was really aggressively opening in, in 2020 and eased a lot of supply chain pressures. We all know what China has done to supply chain pressures uh, on the other side and where they, they've, they've been an inflationary impact at a time we had no room for it. But um, I, you know, I think a lot of the recent China policy and the reopening and, and even some of this resurgence that may, you know, make this a little bit of a standoff. China's growth is not something that I think is going to really come back until the latter part of next year. And I, I think if you think about the impact that that has on commodities and, and global demand, this is something that I think is going to be a lot more stubborn and, and a lot more sluggish than we have. I think it's very good for EM. And let's not, you know, let's not forget, this is the one central bank in the world that actually has easing and, and, and policy that is very different from the other three of, say, the G4. Yeah. You know what this really reminds me of, though? Post-financial crisis. I mean, think about all of the monetary and the fiscal that happened here, and then it started rolling. It went to Europe. I mean, we were still dealing with the reverberations of our financial crisis years after the bottom was essentially put in. And when you think about, you know, I, I mean, come on, guys, a year ago, remember the roaring 20s, all these strategists with these crazy, you know, prognostications about what the economy was going to be doing and how quickly we we're going to get back to, you know, like global well, GDP. roaring 20s in the market, wasn't it? Well, but that's all it was. And, yeah. and that was a function of the stimulus. It was a function of, like, at least us putting $4 trillion worth of, and look what happened to housing. Look what happened to the stock market. Look what happened to Rolexes. Look at every risk asset that wasn't bolted down. On the flip side of that now, we just have like subpar growth. It's just not going to be a great environment, I think, for risk assets in general. But to me, I think that if you go back and you think about 2011, 12, 13, we're still dealing with, you know, these sovereign debt crises all over the world. And it was really, um, I think, a headwind to growth. And I think that's what we're seeing here. I sort of can't help but wonder, all right, what does this mean in terms of people going, getting vaccinations? What does it mean for a CVS? What does it mean for a Walgreens? Is this going to be something that I normally don't get a flu shot? This year I got a flu shot. I probably will continue to get booster shots. Right. And you probably and, picked up like a pack of gum yes, or exactly. something on the way. Yeah. And so what, what may National have been Enquirer, just a... Possibly. Probably not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I. I uh, so I, I wonder. You know, is this going to be good for them? And then obviously a Moderna or a Pfizer, whomever like that. But but what happens to that pricing? Does right. it come down? Does it become you know very commodity like? Sure. So I don't know. That's sort of you guys think we're big picture. I'm 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 a little Thank more you. lower down. Yeah. Well, there are trades all over the place, right, guy? Yeah. And what does it mean for the Fed's job? Does this make the Fed's job yeah. more difficult or does it make the Fed's job easier? I mean, you can probably make a pretty cogent argument either way. Easier in terms of, you know, maybe inflation wanes on the back of this on a demand thing, but maybe more difficult if supply chains become a problem again. And I quite frankly, I don't know the answer. So I think it has ramifications for our market with in terms of what it potentially could mean for Chinese demand, and subsequently, what does it mean for the multinationals that have such, uh, you know, such a presence there? I, I don't know, but it's what the interesting thing is. I don't know the answer to it right now. I really don't. I think it, might, but if I had a guess, I think it makes the Fed's job more difficult. You know, it's funny because when you said that, guy, my mind went to what if inflation starts going down, but we're also seeing. Right. China slowed down at the same time. If China starts picking back up, as Tim is predicting, at the end of next year, when the Fed should be out of the picture, 
What does that then do to their job if they see inflation then either stay high or go higher? I mean, how much, <laughs> how complicated does that become for the Fed in terms of navigating what to do? Well, I, I think if you bring China back into the equation, yeah. there's, there's no question. And, and I think if for certain parts of the world, you know, the emerging market trade, China is the most important story. It's not the U.S. And to the extent that, especially at least across Asia and even developed Asia, South Korea and, and somewhat Japan. So um, that, that's something that I, I think is part of the opportunity with the dollar trade. And, and, you know, uh, been saying for the last couple months that the dollar's a tailwind. It's not a headwind anymore. And but from the Fed's impact, a dollar that's down 10 percent, we're going to have a great currency conversation later on in the show, because on some level, that's really important for financial conditions. And so the dollar was actually a deflationary headwind. And now, again, dollar may not be the Fed's best friend. Right, right, right. Um, you know, Karen, yesterday we were talking about pre-pandemic levels and what is different now versus during the pandemic and before the pandemic. So if you think about before the pandemic, China was still a growth engine, right? China was fully open. That was an area for growth. And now, now look at it. So when we think about where things should be priced, do we think that it should get that same valuation for a company that was dependent on China? It Mm -hmm. seems like it, it should absolutely should not. Because Absolutely it's not, not going to be there as that yes. growth engine for some time. Potentially not. I think it's it's as much of a uh, U.S.-China relations issue mm-hmm. as it is a pandemic issue, right? The, the relations between the two countries were much better then, right. right? And it wasn't this idea of, all right, they would shut down any U.S. company. But now we're looking at a very different environment. And we're looking at U.S. companies needing, you know, we see Apple needing to say, we got to repatriate yes. our important technology. That's going to be inflationary. That's expensive, and I, I think they're going to retaliate. That's just fascinating. You know, Mike Wilson, obviously from Morgan Stanley, strategist, has been on the show. He's been really right all year long. He called that tactical rally after being bearish all year in mid-October. Now he's gone the other way. I think he put $180 in S&P earnings for next year. So think about that. You want to talk about pre-pandemic levels in 2019, the S&P had $162 in earnings. So if they did his scenario, which most analysts are well above $200 a share, let's say we do $180, that's up 10%. Why shouldn't the stock market with, with all of these growth headwinds, and think about where rates are relative to 2019. The Fed had tried to raise in 2018, and then they stopped. I think you know stock valuations are just still way too high. So to me, I stick to that 3,400 target. I think there's a lot of strategists, a lot of investors who think there's a really good chance the S&P will overshoot and go lower. But you really got to focus on S&P earnings. And if this is going to be a headwind, if China's going to be a headwind, Europe is not going to be any sort of additive to anything going on with U.S. multinationals. And Tim, you just mentioned the dollar. Five it's down 5% or so from its recent 10. highs. It's still up a lot year over year. Yeah, no doubt, but but do you, the dollar's a tailwind going forward, no? I mean, the, the, the dollar, talking about the, the dollar's a headwind, we're going to, you know, we're going to talk about Nike. We're going to yeah. talk about FedEx. This is a big part of what they're going to talk about and what it means in constant currency. Uh, I'm not worried about the dollar going forward. I, I think Fed policy um, has peaked, and I think if you look at the rest of the world, they're catching up, and it doesn't mean that it's going straight down, but I, I, I think this is a great thing. But I, I agree with what you're saying, and I'll just say, I'll add to it, you're going to overshoot to the downside on the multiple, too. So you, you shouldn't be right. paying 16, 17 times to so like, oh, Oh, wow, that's a low, you know, relative to what we've been. That's where people start talking about 13 times, at least until you bottom. And if you get 13 times, you know, 160 or 180, boy, um, I think we know how to do that math. And that brings me to Apple, Guy. I mean, in terms of valuation, we were talking about Apple yesterday with Chris Verone. Um, and if we think that China's uh, difficulties with COVID are going to be much longer than we think and more difficult and there are shutdowns and lockdowns, et cetera, all over the country. I mean, that's just another 
issue that China has. I mean, forget about getting the Foxconn factory up and running. I mean, <laughs> they're just another lockdown away from missing estimates yet again. Yeah, no question. I'm sure you brought it up last night, but we'll bring it up again. It's an expensive stock in this environment. Low single-digit EPS growth, low single-digit revenue growth with declining margins. And their cash position, which is still tops in the, in, the, in, in the world, has been dwindling the last few quarters. So it's an expensive stock in this environment. And I'll say again, Apple's not immune to all the things we've been talking about for the last 11 and a half, 12 minutes, for that matter, for the last few weeks. So I think Apple needs to have its day of reckoning to the downside for this market to sufficiently bottom. And I don't think it's happened yet by any stretch of the imagination. Coming up, we're all over the after-hours action in Nike and FedEx. Shares on the move after reporting results. Nike up around 12%. We'll want to see what they say about China. We'll go inside the numbers next, plus a staggering turn of events at Tesla. The stock just getting crushed today, ending the session down 8%. Shares now down over 30% this month. What can be done to stop this truly electric slide? We'll dive in later when Fast Money rolls on. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janus Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janus Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. An earnings alert on Nike. Shares popping up close to 12% after hours with results topping estimates on the top and the bottom lines. Earnings per share coming in 21 cents higher than expected and revenues hitting more than $13.3 billion in the quarter. Steve Kovacs been listening in on the conference call. Steve, what's the latest? Hey there. Yeah, Mel, besides those beats, let's talk about what's moving the shares this uh, after hours here. So it's the same thing. It's just a different quarter with Nike. Um, what we are seeing here are talk about margins, inventory, and China sales all in focus in this report. Like you said, it was another beat for Nike, but there have been a lot of underlying issues weighing on the stock so far this year. Fresh off the earnings call, though, Nike saying worst of the inventory problems are behind the company now. As for margins, they fell about 300 basis points for the quarter, and Nike blaming clearing out that inventory for that. And one other catalyst moving the stock higher, though, it's the China sales showing signs are bouncing back. Sales were down 3% year over year, but that's a huge improvement over the 16% drop in China 
line of sales in the last earnings report. There are also signs Nike's direct-to-consumer investment is paying off. Those sales were up 16% to over $5 billion. And consumer demand is still the lingering question, though, as Nike's call begins. CEO John Donahoe just kicking it off saying, quote, our consumer demand stands out. Now, the call's just getting started. We'll hear what Nike has to say about guidance and other demand now that we're in the middle of the, or sorry, the tail end of the holiday shopping season, Mel. Yeah, I would also love to hear what they're saying about China and what they're seeing right now in terms of demand on the ground. Steve, thanks to you, Steve Kovac. Uh, Guy, uh, what do you think of the quarter? Yeah, I mean, it's a great quarter. I'm just looking at it. Direct sales were up 16% year over year. That's very good. What concerns me, a couple things concern me. I mean, the inventory bill of 43% year over year, $9.3 billion, that's not insignificant. They're going to try to talk that away, but you have to take that into consideration. In terms of the stock, the move makes sense, but look at where we are a little longer term. This is where we topped out at back in August before we cratered. So this is probably a level where if you've been long the stock for the last month and a half, two months, you take money off the table. I'll say this, though, quickly. At 28 times next year's numbers, given their EPS growth, it's not really a valuation concern, in my opinion. So I'll I'll respond to that first. If you think about Nike's pre-pandemic EPS, excuse me, it's it's PE multiple. It was about 27 times on a five-year average. So what do you want to do? Well, we just had a conversation. Maybe a debate is you don't even deserve your five-year average pre-pandemic. We're in a very different rate environment. You certainly don't deserve the pandemic one. Uh, I will get back to both the the margin profile, um, which was better than expected. I think the the FX dynamics, again, in constant currency, um, Nike's, you know, around 21%. So uh, dollar, I think, helps these folks going forward. But I I still think it's about North America. And the the sales are surprisingly, um, you know, you know, I was going to try to come up with a, a vocabulary word, an SAT vocabulary word. But, of course, you just used a couple big ones in the last block. I was listening to virulent. Virulent um, is a good that, one. That was, but I, and the reason we bring this up is because, Guy, we noticed that there's a, a, an SAT vocab book right <laughs> next like to you. On your I'm just Are you studying up? I mean, what, what's you, going on? How are you doing on the practice exam? And, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah, it's, it's interesting. I also have a pocket thesaurus. <laughs> you playing our home game, but this is, but this is my favorite one. Look at this. Look at this one. Can you read this? Great monologues. Great this monologues for young actors. For young actors. Could be dangerous. Yeah. Wow. Dangerous yeah. game right now. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Going through the bookshelf. Hey, yeah. can I say something on this? Or yeah. Just do yeah, no, no. Okay, go ahead. Um, interestingly <laughs> enough, three months ago when they reported, um, the stock, you know, was trading at 97. That's where it closed. And I had a little small position in it. I said I had a small position. I'd like to buy the gap lower. And I thought mm-hmm. it was good. So they guided lower. And I bought some. And the stock traded to the low 80s. And now here we are at 115. The flip side of this, right? Good quarter. They kind of beat that guidance here. The lowered guidance. If you're buying this stock at 115, you're totally doing this wrong. Like, what did we just talk about for the first 10 minutes of this? This is like a moment in time where this company had expectations that were lowered and they just beat them. Let's see what the guidance is. I wouldn't be buying the stock at 115 because this is going to be every sort of headwind that you can imagine for a multinational like this. They maybe had the tailwind of the World Cup and some of this other stuff that caused a, a surge in demand. But guys, right about that inventory level. And why did Lulu get punished a couple weeks ago? Because of that inventory level. So if you're skeptical of them, I think you have to be skeptical right here at 115. All right, let's get to FedEx now. The stock is also higher after hours. Earnings coming in above analyst estimates, but revenues were well below expectations, falling short by more than $900 million. Frank Holland is here to take us inside those numbers. Frank. Why are there, Mel? Uh, the EPSB could be seen as a sign that CEO Roger Romanian's aggressive cost-cutting of flights and labor hours while focusing on higher margin volume is actually working. Shares up right now, as you mentioned, but start off on a bit of a roller coaster. The sophomore year guidance likely a factor. Remember, the estimate was lowered 
After Supermanian said, we were headed to a global recession. FedEx also updating its cost-cutting plans, now saying it's aiming to save $3.7 billion this fiscal year, above its previous target of $2.2 to $2.7 billion. In the report, FedEx saying, in part, it moved with urgency to make rapid progress on its ongoing transformation while navigating a weaker demand. And when you look at the segments, it kind of shows that weaker demand. FedEx still maintaining strong pricing power. Its signature express air delivery, seeing price per package increase by 8%, while the volume fell by double digits. Weakness in China likely to blame. Its freight business continues to be a real bright spot. Revenue per shipment up 23%, while volume was down by 9%. Call coming up in just a few minutes. Expect a lot more commentary about the situation in China that you guys touched on at the top of the show. All right, Frank, keep us posted. Thanks a lot, Frank Holland. Uh, Karen, mm-hmm. finally, it's trading higher off of earnings. Yeah, so I don't own it anymore. Uh, yeah. I, I swapped into UPS. I think, you know, expectations were low. The multiple is very low. Um, I, the bar was low. And they kind of, they jumped slightly over the bar. I think, you know, with some hits and misses, as Frank said. I think that it's still very much a show-me story. They've had a very erratic kind of... Um, you know, execution path. We'll see. Um, UPS is up a little on the heels of this. Um, And it's more expensive. I think it deserves to be more expensive. I just feel more comfortable with them. I understand the global story is slowing a little, but I do think the secular change is real. And I I like UPS more because their focus is on um, revenue per package, revenue per delivery, not necessarily being bigger, just making more money. Yeah. You still own it? Uh, I do own some. Uh, you know, to me, the story at FedEx, the problem here is this company has disappointed so many quarters in a row up until this one, which, you know, right now the best news is that the CapEx is down for next year and that the cost cutting is going to be increased. Uh, you know, that's great. And that does sound like efficiency. And the reason why UPS trades, you know, four or five turns north of FedEx is a lot to do with that. But I just think it's a while before the analyst community actually upgrades. I think I think the multiple um, has a weight on top of it. It's going to take multiple quarters for people to actually start to believe again. It looks like they did do a pretty accelerated, big accelerated buyback, I mm-hmm. think, of a billion to uh, to check that. But sort of, uh, I, I mean, it, they must think there's, you know, value in the shares there. But uh, it's surprising given how much they're also spent. Yeah. Frank highlighted mm-hmm. weakness and volumes in China, which we were just talking mm-hmm. about. Um, guys, so it will be interesting to see, you know, for both Nike and for FedEx, what they see right now on the ground in terms of color. No question. Listen, that's important. But they're at least this quarter, they're operating better. And how do I mean, I look to operating margins mm-hmm. in FedEx Express, which, by the way, is half their revenue uh, typically. And they beat significantly 3.2 percent. The street was at 2.1 percent. And overall margins were improved. So, yes, and freight, I guess they did better. But freight is not really a big part of their business. It really comes down to express and ground. And both those seemingly doing better on the margin side of things. And if you can get past their missteps over the last two years, effectively, you can make a pretty good case for FedEx. Maybe the worst is over. So we've basically just gotten back what we lost during the day. I'm not getting too crazy here, but it's definitely a good sign. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Hungry? We're munching on some chip options next. Micron gearing up to report results. So how should you position yourself? The details on that trade next. Plus, a yield curve, curveball, from the Bank of Japan. And global markets are feeling the heat. The impact on rates, currencies, and more. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. 
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialised across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. The chip maker sitting out today's market rebound. The SMH, the ETF that tracks the semis down fractionally, pacing for its worst year since the great financial crisis of 08. Micron is set to report tomorrow. It's on track for its worst year since 2015, and options traders are now betting that Micron is going to keep heading lower. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. Yeah, so we saw it trade 1.3 times, actually a little more than that above its average daily options volume, puts outpacing calls, and right now the options market implying a move of about 5.7% by the end of the week. That's larger than the 4% that the company has averaged over the last eight reported quarters. The most active puts were the Jan 13th weekly expiration 48 strike puts. We saw a 1,500 contract block trade around 122 early this morning. Ultimately, over 5,000 contracts traded. Buyers of those puts are obviously betting the Micron's going to fall below that $48 strike price over the course of the next couple weeks. That would put the stock down around levels not seen September uh, 2020 or so. Dan. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, what Mike just identified is maybe somebody hedging a short-term position or making a near-term bet defining their risk. If you look at the chart, technically that $50 level is not a great level, and then there's like an air pocket down to 40 or so. But this is a cheap stock. We've talked about this stock a lot over the years. It's kind of a bit of a value trap. I think Tim would tell you that you want to look at names like this. You want to see if the news is bad and it kind of holds in there because of valuation and also because people are saying, okay, listen, we know about all the double order. We know the pull forward. We know some of the trends that we've seen in the semi-business, but if the market's going to turn, Micron and stocks like it are likely to start showing some good relative strength. So it'll be really interesting to see how it acts after what is likely to be poor guidance. Tim, is that what you would say? Oh, I mean, I, sometimes Dan takes the words. Sorry to put words in your beautiful mouth there, buddy. He says it better than I could. Well, I, I, there's a couple things for Micron. One, also, there's just been a major ASP erosion. There's been a dynamic between yeah. supply and demand. Seen a lot of cuts. Um, how much of that's priced in? A lot. A lot, but it's not time to go out and buy it. And I agree, the level looks awful. Yeah, guy, quickly. NVIDIA has just initiated reduce at HSBC, I think, on December 14th. And as Tim and I talked about last week, it's a stock that's rallied almost 70% from those October lows. So when they report in February, I think this is a stock that's probably going to do that back and fill. So the name's probably overextended the upside over this little rally from, I guess, mid-October or so. All right, Mike, thanks. Mike Coe for more Options Action. Be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, Christmas Eve Eve, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, a big policy shift in Japan, what the central bank did that rocked global bond markets and sent the yen surging. Plus, Tesla's tumble continues. That stock just heading lower and lower. So are there any red lights in sight? The traders are digging in when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on the market today. Stocks closing out in the green, snapping a four-day losing streak. The Dow jumping more than 90 points. The S&P up just one-tenth of a percent. And the Nasdaq just eking out a gain. Now to the staggering uh, move by the Bank of Japan's uh, policy 
uh, change that rattled investors around the world today. The BOJ deciding to allow the Japanese 10-year bond yield to move a half point to either side of its 0% target. The bond yield spiking now up 63% over the past week. The move sending the yen to its highest level against the dollar in months. Our next guest believes the greenback will continue to weaken and take U.S. stocks along with it. Currency expert Jens Nordvig runs Exante Data. He's here to talk about the yen. Yens on the yen. We, <laughs> We're, we, I mean, we couldn't have you expect that this from us. Yens. Come on, Jens. Yeah. Yeah. Never heard it before. Yeah. <laughs> How significant is this? So we've had uh, essentially zero interest rates around the world, right, mm-hmm. since 2009. We've been coming out of it. Japan was the last country in the world, last significant country to start to move away from zero interest rates. It's a big, big deal. Japan is a big investor in all kinds of markets, especially fixed income markets around the world. And we can see when there's a shift in Japan, we've essentially had all yields globally shift up today from Europe to the United right. States. So it's a big deal. Uh, and it's not just today, right? This is a signal that they're going in a certain direction. There's going to be almost guaranteed more steps in 2023 from the Bank of Japan. It's almost guaranteed. So what other steps could we be in for if this is just sort of like the, the toe in the water, so to yeah, speak? So, so today they stopped anchoring the 10-year yield, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have not done anything with the short end yet. Like, we still have effectively like minus 10 basis point interest rates in Japan, right? So if inflation is around free, all the models we have tracking inflation in Japan suggest we're around free right now. Is it correct to have slightly negative interest rates in the short and the yield curve? Like that's clearly going to be debated. They have a new governor coming in in April, right? So the new governor, it kind of actually after what happened today, it's got to be much easier for the new governors to really do something because in a way, a really difficult part of the job has been done today. Getting started. So, right. yeah, I, I agree. And you said big deal. I'll say big, big deal. And maybe you're saying that, too. <laughs> I, I, but when we think about the yen and the move that it had made over the previous nine to 12 months, that was a three standard deviation move against the dollar. Um, typically, when you see the, ren, the yen strengthen like this, this could actually be seen as some risk aggression, risk on. But frame this because uh, obviously it's doing this for different reasons than it has at other times. Yeah. Like the, the whole correlation between equity markets and the yen is out of the window. Like the relationship that people were used to from 2008 and other kind of crisis episodes has not been working at all this mm-hmm. year. So uh, we have inflation in the world. Inflation changes everything. All those correlations were based on no inflation, right? And we have inflation even in Japan. So um, we have to just get used to the environment being totally different. I think. Also, we, we have so much talk about, you know, Fed pivot. Even if the Fed is going to slow down the pace and so forth, we're still going to be in an environment that is not zero interest rates, right? And, and this is going to be a global thing. And all the trends that were predicated on zero interest rates, they're not going to come back anytime soon. And today's news is just yep. reinforcing that. Yeah. So let me ask you, the, the yen carry trade, which has been gigantic for a really long time, is that, I mean, is there a rush to the exit? What happens to that trade now? Or is it still enough room there to do it? When I looked at the price action today, this is literally what I wrote to my clients when I just observed what was going on. The, the carriage trades did not do very badly today. It's very interesting. That actually tells me that, you know, EM carry, those type of things, I don't think they are subscribed to. Like, it is different from 2007 when there was a lot of carry trading in currency markets. People have been doing other things. And the price action today tells me that people don't have those trades yet. 
All right, Jens, so bringing it back to some of our viewers who, again, this is a bit wonky for me, too, uh, and I'm learning. I appreciate it. What does it mean for stocks? Because what you just kind of described was global stagflation. And, and Japan has finally joined the party, which basically puts just the hammer on the nail that 2023 is going to be a stagflationary environment. So I think Japan's case, right, um, they have been looking at the evidence, more and more inflation, but they've made so many mistakes over the last two, three decades about raising interest rates too early that they just didn't want to make the same mistake again, right? And they are very late to the party. So if they move interest rates from slightly negative to plus one, is that going to kill the economy? One thing I thought was very interesting in the equity market in Japan today was that banks loved it. Mm. Banks loved it, right? Well, they so, loved them in Europe yeah, too, right? Yeah. If you yeah. think about every century. But, it, but every it's like, it's, it's not a typical, like, oh, it's just going to be a catastrophic recession, actually. There's some parts of the stock market that actually like this type of normalization. So I don't think it's like uniformly bad. Uh, if they overdo it, it will be bad. But if they do the correct amount, it might not necessarily be bad. So enough for Japanese stocks, I don't think so. Jens, thank you for coming by. Welcome back to the You're NASDAQ welcome. here on set. Mm-hmm. Jens Nordvig of Exante. Um, Guy, we're noting uh, the, the bold moves, not in the equities market here in the United States, but certainly in, in yields we saw move, in currencies, um, and definitely in commodities, which you pointed out on our call today. Yeah, it's and gold and silver. And what I find fascinating is another way for banks, central banks, to intervene. Obviously, we saw Bank of Japan do it with their currency a while back. Now we're seeing with interest rates, but... I think all roads lead back to gold and silver. And very quietly, you've had this stealth move in silver from the high teens to where we are now. And gold, as Danny Moses, by the way, is just texting me, chart looks fantastic. And his words, not mine, but it's gold's time to shine now. And I happen to agree with that. So you're seeing gold and silver start to, I hate the term, but I'll use it, decouple from crypto. I think that's a really healthy sign. I think this gold trade has legs here, Melbs. It's disappointing that so close to Christmas, Guy was saying gold and silver when he could have gone burl eyes and said silver and gold. gold. But but, but anyway, um, gold's rallied 12%, and this is a perfect environment for gold. Everything the BOJ is doing um, will trigger gold, and you want to own miners in this environment. They have a beta of three times, and I think if you think about the world, and one thing that Yen said that we shouldn't underestimate, Mm -hmm. we all think that yields, or a lot of people think that yields are going to go lower in the long end because of what's going on uh, on the economy and pricing recession. I mean, he just said this. Japanese investors, especially in U.S. mortgage-backed securities and some of the other asset-backed securities around the world, the Japanese buyers are the biggest ones in the world. And this is something, I think, upward pressure on rates. And if you look at European sovereign yields, uh, Spain, Italy, even Germany are back near those highs um, when we were at you know, four and a quarter. Watch out for this. I don't think yields are going straight down. Yeah, and I guess my only point in the question I had for him is, like, again, I mean, we're in a lower growth environment. We spent a lot of time in the show talking about what the headwinds of growth are in 2023 with China here. And if global rates are going higher in a way that we haven't seen in just a long time, that's going to weigh on equity valuations. So to me, like, look at the weakness that we've saw with just the spike of 20 basis points in the 10-year um, in the last couple of weeks. I mean, some of these tech stocks, the art complex, those sorts, they look like they are ready to just take – take a dive and, and maybe they wait until January, but it seems like they're going to overshoot to the downside. And that's happening at some point early next year. And it largely a function of rates and valuation. Coming up, Tesla shares dropping yet again, now down nearly 15% in the last week. Are Tesla's troubles revealing a fundamental flaw for the EV maker? Or is this just a referendum on a distracted Elon Musk? Plus, FedEx still aggressively cutting costs while reporting a big-time revenue miss. The stock is uh, trading higher in the after-hour session. Frank Holland has been listening in on the conference call. will give us the update. Fast Money's back in two. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla shares tumbling more than 8% today, the worst performer in the S&P 500. It's worst day for Tesla since early October. The stock is now down 29% this month, 61% this year. It is the worst performance ever by the stock across both of those time frames. Are there more shoes to drop, Dan? Or, you know, Carter put out a note. He said, this is time to nibble here. Yeah, it might be. I mean, the stock is obviously pretty pressed to the downside. But what's going on here is the guy who's the CEO of the company is selling stock. And and he's been selling stock aggressively. And why is that? On the date that he closed on the Twitter deal for $44 billion, Tesla stock was 227. We've been saying this on this desk, that Tesla is on the hook for all of this, Texas shareholders. Because right now, what's really likely happening is there's a margin call. And, and, and the people that he pledged the stock to are selling the stock to raise the capital for it. And so think about all of that that's gone on just because he wanted to be the guy who owns Twitter. I mean, it's just that simple. So to me, I feel sorry for a lot of these Tesla shareholders, the fundamental ones who believe in him in the, long, like the, the long-term story. But if you look at the holders... You feel sorry but, for them? I feel sorry for them because he's been asleep at the wheel. He sold them a bill of goods. I've said it on the show. The guy's a liar, okay, just flat out. And he said he was done selling stock how many times over the last year? It's just a fact. I mean, you can look at me. You can roll your eyes. You can tell me whatever. He lied to his shareholders, and he has been not there for them over the last two months when the stock has massively underperformed the NASDAQ over the last two months that we've seen a huge rally. So to me, I feel sorry for them. But the rest of the shareholders, you know what's really interesting? They're all indexers. And two years ago, on November 16th, the S&P added Tesla to the S&P 500. The stock doubled, and the stock has round-tripped that entire price. It's trading exact price of where it was on November 16th when S&P said it's going into the index. So sorry, people. By the way, the 8% mm-hmm. drop today in part because a couple of banks lowered their price targets. Evercore cutting it by a third to 200 bucks a share. Daiwa cutting it to 177 from 240. Um, it, it's definitely Elon Musk related. Brand destruction over at Tesla. Distraction. You know, those are the reasons, Karen. Right. I, you know, I think with uh, Twitter not doing well and mm-hmm. that debt being very expensive, it's understandable that he would want to equitize some of it if he could. So maybe he's looking to buy back some of the debt. Right. Needs to get the money from Tesla shares being sold. I don't know. I'm not sure. But um, I do think that he has damaged the brand. I don't know that it can be. Um, I don't know. Let's say he gets a new CEO into Twitter tomorrow. Does that does that stem the bleeding? It might for briefly. I don't know. It, it doesn't change the need to sell stock. It doesn't. Even if he's not CEO of Twitter. Right. But we don't know how much stock he's sold. Right. And we don't know about the debt. We also, we have no idea how much the revenues are down, how much money the company is losing. We don't know any of that. So it's sort of hard to say. But I think that when you're saying it's Tesla's, Tesla's, sort of bill to pay, you're saying in terms of shareholders. Tesla shareholders have been on the hook. Is the only way he he was not liquid enough. He had to pledge all his shares to buy this. But here's one thing that's a little bit, uh, uh, he's been selling 3.6 billion the other day, maybe sold a few more billion. This is a gigantic company. Shouldn't it be able to withstand a few billion dollars of sales? Except Uh, except except that it's from the the CEO. Right, which is a totally different signal. To his shareholders. He, but does a signal, I don't like Tesla anymore? Or, oh, God, I need the money for something else. I need the money for something That's else. That's what I think it is. Yeah. yeah. Which you think is not as bad. I do think it's yeah. not as bad. All right. Coming up, the FedEx conference call underway. The stock is still higher. The details after the break. Fast Money back right after this. 
get another check on FedEx. The shares are up by 3.4%, so holding on to those gains after the company posted mixed results for the latest quarter. EPS beating estimates by 36 cents. Revenues coming in more than $900 million below consensus. The conference call just got underway, so uh, Frank Collins got the headlines. Frank. Yeah, listening just now, uh, CEO Raz Romanian focusing on efficiency and a leaner FedEx on the call. He said global freight volumes have fallen even harder than he previously expected when the FedEx CEO issued a very dire recession warning last quarter. The declining demand trends we saw at the end of Q1 softened further in the second quarter, and we are moving faster and with more determination than ever to accelerate our cost actions. Today, we will provide more detail on those cost actions. Yes, Romanian saying that inflation was also a factor in softening the volume. So overall, when you look at these results, the margin beat could be seen as a sign that FedEx's plans are working to cut costs and become more efficient. They also reduced CapEx. You guys talked about that earlier. They also announced what they're calling a drive initiative designed to save $4 billion annually. Thin on detail so far, the company says they're going to provide an update in the first half of next year. Back over to you. All right, Frank, thanks. Frank Holland. Tim? Yeah, it's great to hear about cost cuts, but and that's on some level efficiency is something that FedEx needs badly. It's why it trades at a discount. But this is an environment where um, FedEx is going into an environment where we're hearing about demand dynamics that I, I don't think are a reason to go out and buy the stock, even though you've had a nice rally here. And, and frankly, off of those lows after the last earnings call, um, this has been this is an excellent chart. It's an interesting chart. But FedEx, which I think leads, um, this is not a leadership position. All right. Up 3.6 percent right now. Up next, final trades. As Dan would say, silver looks like it's getting ready to party, which leads me to Pan American Silver, P-A-A-S, Melms. Tim Seymour. And the other half of that Burl I've song, gold. But in this case, Barrick Gold with the ticker G-O-L-D. Better run, free cash flow, and of course, I think gold is going higher. It'll do three times what gold does. Remember back in the day, it was ABX. Yes. Long time ago. Karen Feinerman. Yeah. So what we really haven't seen yet is big credit trouble. And I think there's sort of an asymmetric risk reward. I am short the HYG. Rates and credit. Ah, How did you guys not do the B-side from Joshua Tree, U2, Silver and Gold? Great song. No, nothing. <laughs> um, Nike, I like this. You guys own it. It's been, it's had a nice run off the lows. Given what we're headed into, I'd be a seller if you own this thing right here. It's up 12.5% right now after hours. No Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.